Welcome to another edition of the Find Your Calling podcast. I'm Todd Wilson, your host, and today I have with me Carrie Newhoff. Carrie, good to have you. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Todd. Well, Carrie is the founding and teaching pastor at Conexus Church. They're a strategic partner of North Point. They're an eight-year-old church. And Carrie handed off the lead pastor role recently to be in a teaching pastor position to give himself more time for working on leadership and equipping the broader body of Christ through speaking and authoring a blog and a podcast. So great to have you, Carrie. Let's just jump right in here and start with your sure. story, your background, and how you've gotten to where you're at today. Yeah, well, thanks, Todd. I um, I had the good fortune of being raised by Christian parents, so grew up in the church, and I think God uses your early formative experiences to shape the rest of your life. So, you know, loved Jesus, gave my life to Christ at a young age, but increasingly grew frustrated with the way we did church. I just saw the gap between sort of our style in the, in the 70s and 80s and what was happening in the culture around us, but had no idea what to do about it. I just thought, you know, there's only one way to do church, and that was the way our traditional mainline church did it. But love the gospel, uh, sat under biblical preaching. In my late teen years, kind of drifted a little bit, but probably not far enough that if there was a car accident, I, I likely would have ended up on the right <laughs> side of eternity, but was not was not really surrendered and found myself in law school. That was my dream when I was eight years old. I decided I wanted to be a lawyer and got there via radio. I did some radio, walked in at age 16. It's funny when, you know, this podcast is all about calling and I just have the most circuitous route into ministry where wanted to be a lawyer at eight, walked into a radio station at 16 and said, hire me. And they were dumb enough to do it. So Worked in radio for about eight years in my hometown and then in Toronto. And I did that part-time while I went to school. Got into the law school of my dreams. And the best thing that came out of law school was my wife, who I've been married to for 26 years. And we met at Osgoode Hall Law School in Toronto. And then halfway between first and second year law, for the first time, really felt a shift in my calling. I had never really thought about calling. Uh, I had recommitted my life to Christ at 20 or 21, a few years before law school, but was shocked to sort of get this prompting, feeling series of experiences that I think was God waking me up going, I want you in ministry. And I just honestly never thought of it. Finished law, uh, articled in downtown Toronto, got called to the bar of Ontario, and then promptly resigned and went to seminary out of obedience, but really confused but what to do, because I didn't have any pastoral gifts classically. I'm not, you know, a high mercy person or, you know, never really saw myself as anything but a, but a preacher. Uh, but came 21 years ago to an hour north of Toronto, where, where I am right now, and started in a mainline church, taking over three small dying churches. The average attendance at the smallest was six. Uh, long story short, God did some incredible things. Uh, those three churches grew. We amalgamated them, built a new building. And then eight years ago, kind of started over again as uh, in a non-denominational context. By that point, I'd met North Point, Andy Stanley, Reggie Joyner. We uh, joined in as a North Point strategic partner. And then last year, uh, sort of stepped sideways in the organization. And we've grown to about 1,200 people, 2,500 people call our church home, 1,200 attenders, and handed the reins of the lead pastor role to Jeff Brody, and I'm continuing on with Conexus as a teaching pastor and 
my secret title is director of moonshots. I just, you know, that's sort of a Google thing. So that's a secret title. It's not official at all, but I'll just work on special projects and work with Jeff on, on the stuff that's going to help us move our mission forward. Well, there's no universal definition of calling out there, Carrie. If you would tell us in your own words how you would describe calling or yeah, I wish I had a better answer for this, and I actually thought about it, Todd, but I've, I've figured it all out just sort of as I go along. And I would say it's using the gifts that God has given you for the maximum impact you can use them for. You know, sometimes we think we're called to something. I might think I'm called to be a musician, but I have zero gifts in that area, which in my case is true. It's probably not actually a calling. And so, I've, you know, as, as even that, summary of my story suggests I've kind of fallen into my calling backwards. I've, I've discovered it by accident rather than on purpose. And the more I look at my life, the more I realize, whether it was in law, whether it was in radio, whether it was in you know, authoring books or writing a blog or doing my own podcast, which I launched a couple of years ago, God seems to use communication over and over and over again. And I've also realized how terrible I am at just about everything else. So I think God must have called me to be some kind of, you know, communicator slash leader at some point, but it, it's kind of by accident. Because when I was younger, I thought I was good at a lot of stuff, and I no longer do. <laughs> hmm. Well, how would you articulate your calling? At the, you said you've gotten clarity over time, so how would you articulate yeah. your calling today? I would say by the time I hit my mid-20s and was trying to figure out what on earth God was doing with with my life, you know, okay, if it isn't law, and, and I had sort of a, I, I had the benefit, I guess, of a series of supernatural, I'm not a charismatic supernatural person, but literally, supernaturally, I think God kind of intervened while I was, you know, bent on arguing before the Supreme Court of Canada before I was 30. That was my ambition. And God kind of made it very clear to me, no, it's not going to be law. And I had every opportunity. I had job offers in downtown Toronto and then ended up in the church and was trying to figure out, should I teach because I don't have any pastoral gifts? But as soon as I got into even those small little churches in a rural municipality an hour north of Toronto, I had a burning passion that I can trace back to 12, the age of 12, uh, for people who don't go to church. And it first showed up. You know, it's only in retrospect you can stitch this together. But I would say, you know, to use Andy Stanley's phrase, because we're a North Point partner, to create a church that unchurched people love to attend. Couldn't have articulated it that way, but when I was, you know, around 30 heading into ministry, I would say I just wanted to create a church that my friends could go to, period. That people who didn't grow up in the church. And that that has been my calling. That is still, I think, a primary calling on my life. And it's defined the last two decades of my life. And it goes back to when I was 12, because I remember lying in bed as a church kid, reading the King James Bible, and having the thought that, you know, I'm reading my Bible, and I know I'm reading my Bible. And I remember praying to God, saying, hey, one day when I grow up, and I learn how to do these things, is it okay if I was to translate the Bible into something other than the King James Version? Because I don't think anybody else could read this. <laughs> I had no idea at the age of 12 that there were Bible translators and that there were other translations of the Bible. All I knew is how difficult it was for me to do my devotion. I look back on that as probably the first inkling in my life that maybe God wanted to help me 
use my gifts to be a bridge to the unchurched. And so that was the primary thing. And then four or five years ago, Todd, you know, as I started to speak more, I wrote a book with Reggie Joyner, and I'd been speaking on the road for about seven or eight years, and started writing, and it started to go well, and more and more people were following. With the mentors in my life, really processed this idea of a secondary calling on my life to lead leaders. And I wish it was better articulated than that, but, you know, one of my mentors just said to me, you know, it's one thing to think, Carrie, that you can lead leaders. It's another to look over your shoulder and discover that there are many following, and you've got that gift, and you need to steward it. And then even last year, working with our elders as I processed this transition at Connexus, and it was very open-handed. You know, I remember one night we sat in my living room, and we were, you know, we don't have a lot of elders. We had four or five, and they all just said, Carrie, you know, as much as we want to steward the church, we also think you have to steward this gift of leading leaders that God has given you. And so we want to get behind you, and we want to help you in this new role, and we want you to help us, and we want to help you. So I would say it's a twofold calling, you know, to create a church on church people love to attend, and now these days it seems to, to lead leaders, help leaders. So just to summarize, before you went into ministry, you would articulate your, amb- you called it your ambition, maybe you yeah. know, in the private sector you'd say ambition. Was this idea of being a great attorney measured by arguing before the Supreme Court before you're 30, a very tangible conquer a hill, something that you yeah. can hold up? I don't think I really thought about calling, to be honest with you. I mean, I just thought I want to be a lawyer. I had no idea why I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, what What makes an eight-year-old decide he's going to be a lawyer? I have no idea. I just, that was me. And then I never really thought about it. I knew people went into ministry, but I didn't think that would be for me. And I'm just, you know, an A-type driven person. And so I had to make up some stuff. And so I made up that by the age of 30, I'd be arguing in the Supreme Court of Canada. And I wanted to be on the litigation side. I wanted to be on the courtroom side rather than the solicitor side. And I was kind of interested in constitutional law and civil law, not criminal. So it's just like, well, where can you go with that? How about all the way to the Supreme Court? <laughs> not very deep, not very theological, not very humble, but very true. I think it is interesting, and it's the story so often of calling. When we saw it with the, the Apostle Paul... He had zeal and passion before he became a Christian. There was a zeal and a passion there. And the conversion process to a new calling just shifted the zeal and passion. He had just as much zeal and passion afterwards. And so what you're describing is is this drive. My guess is if we unpacked your giftedness that would have led you to argue before the Supreme Court before 30, those gifts that you're carrying there... I'm guessing are the same gifts that once you went into ministry that you'd use? Communication? Yeah, you know, I don't know whether you've seen the uh, Eagles documentary that came out a couple years ago on Netflix or HBO or whatever, but fascinating. And, And Joe Walsh, who's been sober for 20 years but lost a lot of brain cells before he became sober, had one of my favorite quotes, and he said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, when you look at, he's telling the story of the Eagles. He says, at the time, your life seems like a chaotic mess, just a sequence of random events that have no meaning or pattern. But one day when you look back on it, it looks like a beautifully written poem. And I totally identify with that. Like, my 20s was spent with a lot of left turns, right turns, U-turns, and there was no discernible pattern that I could see. 
But, you know, radio at 16, I wrote a, a newspaper column when I was 19 that was syndicated in my hometown and environment. I was in radio in Toronto. And then law, I was very interested in the courtroom side, which is all advocacy. I was the valedictorian in my undergrad class and in my degree in history and political science. That's all communication. And, you know, I never would have traced it out that way. And I was listening to a business podcast a couple of summers ago. I forget who it was. It was someone like Elon Musk, but it wasn't Elon Musk, who was being interviewed. And he just said, hey, I look, and this guy was like startup world, you know, venture capitalist type Silicon Valley dude. And he just said, when I looked at all the success from my diverse companies, it comes back to my communication ability, whether that's one-on-one at lunch or whether that's in front of a thousand business leaders. And I thought, yeah, that, that has been the thing that God has consistently used most. There was a time, Todd, I did graphic design for our church. I was horrible at it, but I was better than anyone else. I don't do graphic design anymore. We have people who are masterful at it. But it's that communication gift that's kind of endured. I want to take this idea of ambition and in your own journey from lawyer to engaged in leadership and church roles, maybe in the Apostle Paul's life of a zeal for going after Jews to becoming a Christian and, mm. and planting the gospel. So for let's say for people in your church and for our listeners, your working definition, using our gifts for maximum impact. How do you bring that to bear for people that are not in full-time ministry? Because calling applies across the whole spectrum, not just in ministry, but wherever we are. Yeah, it totally does. You know, I think it's some of the business leaders in our local church here that I interact with. And one of the highest compliments I think I get paid, I'm thinking of a couple of guys who've done really, really well in real estate. Uh, One you know, they're both like national performers in, in their organization. And both of them have said they've never seen a church take leadership so seriously, and they are better business leaders because of their involvement in our church. And I think, I think that's amazing because I think we create this false dichotomy between gifts in the marketplace and gifts in the church, and we over-spiritualize what happens in the church and under-spiritualize what happens in the marketplace. When I worked in downtown Toronto, you know, on Bay Street, the equivalent of Wall Street, uh, I, I worked at the King Bay Chaplaincy, and I watched a lot of burned-out executives who were just completely deflated. They had, you know, they were investment bankers, they were venture capitalist people, they were lawyers, they were, you know, the top performers in a in national economy. And I would meet with them, and that was sort of my chaplaincy work. And I just saw people who just saw this huge void between what they did during the week and the God who loved them. And if somehow we in the church could do a better job of helping real estate agents and business leaders and entrepreneurs and lawyers and accountants and bankers figure out that when they, when they do what they do well and when they do it ethically and when they serve their clients well, they honor God. And the, the principles that work well in business tend not to be inconsistent with biblical principles and that what they're doing is somehow an integrated whole. And then the challenge for those of us in the church, of those of us in the church is how do we get leaders like that fully engaged and fully leaning in, not just in their for-profit businesses, but in sharing the gospel and advancing the mission of the local church? 
So would it be fair to say, Carrie, if I expanded using gifts for maximum impact, and let, let's take some of those real estate guys in your church, if I just added to that, our calling is using our gifts as missionaries for maximum impact in our mission field where we are in our vocation. Does that sure. does that capture you know the expanded or Oh, completely. You know, my wife practices law and she works in family law, which means she runs into a lot of people who are divorcing. And I mean she tries to bring the gospel into those situations. You can't pray with every client, you know, if they don't share your faith basis, but she wants to be a voice of hope in a pretty dark season in most people's lives. Like that, to me, is ministry. You said something that is really significant in calling, which is that idea, a lot of times when we're living in the middle of our story, we don't have clarity on the next thing in front of us, but Mm -hmm. so often we can look back and have complete clarity looking at things after the fact. So this idea yeah. that our lives are a story written by God, chapters, sections, themes, sub-themes, there's a story in our life. I want to look back at your life and, and some of these transition points. You made a comment that at age eight, you dreamed of being a lawyer. Give us a little bit more on that, how that emerged. Woke up wanting to be a lawyer? Or- yeah, you know, it's so anticlimactic when you look back on it. I remember I, I was part of Cub Scouts. And I remember coming home one night, and I don't know whether the guest speaker that day, whether we even had guest speakers, I don't remember. Uh, but something in me twigged that day, and I came home and I told my parents, hey, when I grow up, I want to be a lawyer. Like To this day, I have no idea why. I mean, maybe I saw something on TV, maybe I just woke up, maybe it was the pizza I ate, I, I don't know. But I also think it could have been God. I mean, people used to ask me when I left law, because I mean, it's a big investment financially, time-wise. It was five years from starting law school to being called to the bar and allowed to practice. And that's a that's a big investment of your life and, and definitely of money. And people would ask me all the time in the early years of ministry, do you ever use your law? Well, I wasn't like reading contracts or anything like that. So in the early days, my answer was no, I, I never really use it. And now I've changed that. It's like, yeah, I use it all the time. I use it every day completely changed the way I think. I'm able, you know, in some of my writings for church leaders and even in my preaching, to approach problems that we all face differently because I had five years of legal training and practice. And so I think I use it every day. So when you look back on it, and I mean, God knew what I was going to be doing in my 30s, 40s, and 50s. I had no clue. Probably like, you know what, this guy this guy would be a little bit sharper if we threw him through law school. I don't know. That's just speculation. Well, well, clearly the dream at eight, and then you ended up going off to law school, so there's something to that dream. But caught in between is this at age 16, you just walk into a radio station to get a job. Yeah. Tell us about that. Like, what? where did that come from? That was another thing. It goes back, uh, that was 16. I literally walked up the stairs to the local radio station, which was not much. It was a 1,000-watt AM radio station in a town of 12,000 people. But, I mean, hey, it was the only radio station I could get access to, and I knew a guy who worked there, and I walked in, and I asked the secretary, who do I see to get hired? She introduced me to the program director, and they hired me, and they made me work for free for three months, but I didn't care. I just wanted to be on the radio. And that goes back to when I was 12, and again, it was one of those, like, I have no idea why this happened. But I remember we were making a left-hand turn from William Street onto Highway 12, heading 
to my house. My mom was driving, and there was a radio station in Toronto playing, and I loved the morning show for whatever reason. And I remember thinking as we made that left-hand turn, what do you have to do to be the guy in the radio? Like, that's an actual person in there, and what does it take to be that person? Fast forward four years, and all of a sudden, you know, I have the opportunity to be the guy inside the radio. Again, you know, and I almost, I almost didn't go to law school because it went well in radio. I spent a few years in Midland while I was in high school, and then I had a friend who got me a job in downtown Toronto at what is now the Premier Sports Station. I had, they paid me a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, I had job offers full time. I could basically write a ticket, and it was hard to get in Toronto radio. That's like being in New York radio in the U.S. And I could have made a lot of money, but I also knew at that time, and it's changed, at 40 you were done. Like there was nobody over 40 in the business, and I was like 20. So I just thought, ah, do I want to be done at 40? And my dad and mom were like, you should do law, you should do law. So I applied, got into different law schools, but got into the law school of my dreams. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do law. So kind of walked away from radio when I got married and went into law school. Well, you're between your first and second year, and and you said you started to feel or sense or hear God saying, "I want you in ministry." Tell us about what happened there. Yeah, that was like the supernatural part. There was a, a summer. I mean, I was a Christian, and I was trying to figure out how do you become a Christian lawyer? You know, like how do you practice ethically? Because lawyers have a reputation, right? And so there was this firm in my hometown where I had started in radio. It's a Christian lawyer, senior partner, and he gave me a job. So I thought, well, if I can practice here ethically, I can practice anywhere. And again, I did fairly well. There was a job offer for me there when I when I was done law. But it was in August of that first summer where I was just, it was a normal day at the office. I was working on a case and... I kind of had this vision. It was almost like a daydream. And I saw a picture of myself uh, 20 years in advance at the age of 44. I was very, very successful in law. I was making a boatload of money. And I was morally bankrupt. And I don't know. I, I can't describe it better than that. I knew in an instant to the core of my being that this was not going to be my life. And I walked out of the office and I walked down to the library at our law firm. And I looked down the window and I'm like, okay, God, if not law, like what? What just happened there? And like, okay, it's not law, but what is it? What is it? And I looked down the road. There was a bay window. I looked down the road and I saw the church that I grew up in. And the only part of the church I could see from the law firm window was the pastor's study. And I felt this prompting, this voice saying, you should be in there. I'm like, what? Like, mm. are you kidding me? And I just left the office really confused that day. And I went to pick up my fiance and soon-to-be wife. And we were both staying at my parents' place that summer. And I picked her up. She was working at a pharmacy. And I didn't tell her anything. And we're driving over to my parents' place for dinner. And she says to me, hey, have you ever thought of going into ministry? <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, you have no idea what just happened at the office. And that started a conversation, which led the seminary down the road. And then coming out of seminary and uh, three mainline churches that you sort of went the umbrella over, how did that play itself out? Why those churches? Why that context? Again, I, apparently I do confusion really well because I spent most of my 20s confused. 
I went to seminary really out of obedience. There were a couple of other things that happened supernaturally, just dreams that led me to believe, okay, God, you really are. Like, I didn't want to go into ministry by mistake. I'd rather be a lawyer by mistake than a pastor by mistake, because I, I figured you'd probably get judged if you were in ministry for the wrong reason in eternity. So I really wanted to make sure that was the right thing to do. So I went to seminary out of obedience, but again, I was really confused because, I mean, I'm a lawyer at heart. I'm an A-type entrepreneur guy, and I looked around and, like, wow, this is not the personality type for ministry. Like, I'm a fish out of water. And so I really thought I don't fit well in the local church. And then I thought about doing a doctorate and maybe going on to become a professor because I could teach. I knew I could communicate. Maybe that's what God wants me to do. But we were praying about it, and... There were these student charges. We were part of a mainline church that was not very large, not a lot of large congregations. And often where we are, if churches can't afford a real pastor, two or three of them will band together and they will give a student salary to somebody who's willing to come. And we had tried a couple times and churches said, no, no, we don't want you. So, you know, kind of rejected our last ditch effort was, well, there was this place north of Toronto that was looking for a pastor. So I went up and I preached in January of 95, in these little churches, another guy came up the next week. I found out I won by one vote. It was an overwhelming vote of confidence in my leadership. And, uh, and we went. That was 21 years ago, and we haven't left. Some of the people who are the core of our church today traveled with us that entire time. So that's how I ended up here. And again, Todd, I'm not a supernatural charismatic person, but I think because I was so confused, there was a moment where we were trying to decide, because I also had the opportunity to stay in Toronto. I had the opportunity to stay in Toronto in law and just kind of knew, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. But I also had the opportunity to stay in ministry. A larger church, which most people waited till they were 50 to become the pastor of, said, listen, we will hire you. Within five years, you'll be the senior pastor of this place. Here's your salary. It was double what the little churches in Oro were going to offer me. I thought, wow, I get to work with investment bankers, lawyers, all the Toronto sort of elite. That's what I'm used to. I don't know any farmers, you know, up in this community north of Toronto. Uh, it seems like I should probably, maybe Toronto makes more sense, but we still had this idea that maybe these small churches were what God had in store for us. So I was hoping they would call me from the churches in Oro, an hour north of Toronto, and tell me, no way you you know, hey, we went for the other guy, thanks for trying, and then my decision's made. But they called and told me I won by one vote, and I'm like, oh, no. And George, my leader up in Oro, the interim moderator, said, hey, Carrie, why don't you come up and help us? And I said, George, I cannot make that call right now. I, I just don't know. And I said, listen, can you give me three days? He goes, oh, okay, I'll give you three days. So I hung up the phone, told my wife, hey, they, they want me, so now we have a decision to make one by one vote, and she goes, well, why don't we read the Bible and see what advice it has? And I said, honey, you don't just, like, open the Bible and, like, randomly find a passage. <laughs> like, come on, that's not a very good husband. And she said, well, what would the Apostle Paul do? And for whatever reason, my mind went immediately to Acts 16, where Paul was trying to decide where to go. Am I going to go to Pamphylia, to Phrygia? Where am I going to go? And he has this vision of a man from Macedonia. Now, I knew enough about my old New Testament to know Macedonia was very poor. The churches in Oro were very poor. The church in Toronto was very rich. And the man from Macedonia 
said, come on over and help us. Well, 10 minutes earlier, I'd heard George Cunningham tell me, come on over and help us in Oro, this poor little community. And Paul got up at once and he went to Macedonia. And I read that out loud. We cried. We prayed. I called George back and I said, I think I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to come. And so we came. And you've mentioned your apostolic or entrepreneurial gifting. Is that what then led a number of years later to the launching of Conexus as an independent church? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's been 21 years of change, really. You know, we were in three historic buildings. They were small. They were old. They weren't heated particularly well. So it made sense. They were five minutes apart to kind of amalgamate them, and we moved to an elementary school. Then we built a $2 million facility. The church grew from like 40 people in that first year to about six or 700 by year 10. But I kind of looked around and I thought, wow, as we were growing and we were drawing from, you know, an hour circumference all around us, maybe we should get into this multi-site thing which was starting. And it was going to be difficult to do that in a denominational context. So for a variety of just reasons I, you know, I made and some of our leaders made, we decided we tried to buy the building that didn't work out. So we, I kind of stepped back from that denomination and started over again in a city to the north and a city to the south. We started as a multi-site church. And, and that led to, cause I just wanted to reach more on church people. I thought we could do a better job doing that as a non-denominational church. And so that was the birth of Conexus. We had met Andy in North Point by that point and got invited in. And so, yeah, we started over again. And uh, just last year, moved into a brand new facility. And, you know, in my new job, I helped launch our online campus, which went really well the first week, two weeks. We're two weeks into it now. So I'm just, I'm into like, what frontier can we take next to try to reach unchurched people? So, you know, it's grown. We had 2,200 people at Easter. And I think with our online reach in those first seven days after Easter, about 4,000 different people interacted with our Easter experiences. So we're just, you know, we're pumped for that. And that, that energizes me. Well, Carrie, as we wind down, I think there's an important connection to make. You've referred a couple of times sort of the chaos of the journey and the confusion of the journey. Here's what's interesting in your story to me. I write in my book on calling about three questions that people always ask. Who am I created to be? B is our core identity. It sort of transcends all of our domains. It's sort of the the fount from which other things overflow. What am I made to do? That's the activity that we find ourselves in. And then where am I to do that or where am I to go? Where am I to position myself? And ideally, what we see in the story of our life is that it's our core identity of being that shapes what we do and where we go. If I start with sort of your identity of being, which is this idea of leading leaders in the context of of a church that your friends would want to be in or, you know, doing church in a way your friends want to be there. But this idea of influencing leaders or leading leaders, if you go back in your story, lawyer, there's a doing aspect of law, which if you think about it is influencing juries or influencing people to an outcome. You you look at a radio station, and, and again, that's a doing activity that might not make sense at the time. You happen to see this opportunity in a radio thing. Radio, again, is doing, being a radio announcer. But what, yep. does, a, what does a radio announcer do? The very reason you were asking the question about the radio announcer is the influence that the radio announcer was having on you. Radio announcers influence people. God's then stepping in miraculously to shift your ambition for what purpose? To put you in a position 
to influence leaders. So I would not underestimate in your own life this idea that at the core of your being, God's made you in a way to lead leaders or to influence leaders. And even though as you were living it, the story might seem chaotic, you can actually look back at each of the steps along the way and see the see how those clues of where you were positioned, where you were going, and what you were doing actually point back to your core identity of being. What I think that we can take comfort in knowing is all of us run into places where we're not clear on what the next step is, but boy, the clues are just embedded if we will look back in our life at what we've done, where we've done it, and look for what that points to. And I think that's pretty strong in your, your story. That's better said than I've ever said it. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. That's, a, that's helpful. And, you know, I would just say that to people. You know, a lot of people get paralyzed by calling. And the one thing that I think is true over these last 30 or whatever years is I just, even when I was confused, I never stopped. And I think, you know, if you just take the next right step or what you believe in faith is the next right step, God's a pretty good chess player, and he'll outmove you if you're going in the wrong direction. You know, he'll counter you, he'll check you, and he'll make sure you get back on the path. There is a beautiful, you know, I think even in my personal story and in, in every story, there's a sovereignty of God thing. And the other thing that I've really benefited from over this last decade that I didn't have, well, I had it to some extent in my 20s, but it's this circle of wise counsel. And even as I navigated this big move last year, you know, into not being the lead pastor and being a teaching pastor and maybe opening up a tiny bit more bandwidth for the wider leadership stuff. That was process, number one, on my knees. But number two, with a handful of very, very close wise counsel who advised me and then a wider circle of about 20 people that I brought into the process and said, you know, hey, what do you see? Hey, what are you hearing from God? What mistakes would I make if I did this? What opportunities are there? And when I heard, I heard God's voice and their voice, and then, you know, it's my job to obey it. Well, that's fantastic, Carrie. Well, Carrie is influencing literally thousands of people. If you want to know more and hear more from Carrie, you can visit his website, CarrieNewhoff.com. Carrie has just a fantastic podcast on leadership. Uh, he's an author. His most recent book, Leading Change Without Losing It, it you need to check out and just a very prolific blog on leadership topics. So, Kerry, thanks again for being with us, and I would encourage anyone to, to check out more of what Kerry has out there. Thank you so much, Todd. Thanks for building in the leaders. Really appreciate you and look forward to having you on my podcast. Uh, looking forward to it, Kerry. Thank you. These interviews and the Be Do Go framework that I use are based on my book, More. You can learn more about the book, More, at www.more-book.com.